the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, now formally charged with four counts in connection with efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. An historic moment for the country. Yes, it is. Would have been, been an even better moment an hour earlier. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Just saying, Jack Smith. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. But it's getting closer, and right? I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, if barely, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. So on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites... Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, swell if harried fellow, says me, (laughs) from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for what is now uh, officially a uh, special edition of the Bradcast. Yeah, we didn't know that today. We did not know that until about 15 minutes ago, to be frank. Uh, so, yeah, we are a little uh, confused, excited, discombobulated. Uh, had a really good show for you today. Tossing it all out the window, apparently, because just minutes ago, we have learned that the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, has been charged uh, or at least has had a um, an indictment handed up by the grand jury in Washington, D.C., in the uh, special counsel Jack Smith's probe of the January 6th and related events to steal the 2020 election by the president of the United States, Donald Trump has been charged on four federal felony counts in that matter. Count one, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Count two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Count three, obstruction of and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. And count four, conspiracy against rights. What do all of those charges mean? Well, I don't know. We're all going to figure it out together. (laughs) Special counsel Jack Smith quite literally just walked away from the podium seconds ago after making a very brief announcement, just uh, about a two-minute announcement, I believe it was. So we're going to play that announcement for you in full, and then we will share whatever we can figure out from this 45-page indictment handed up on Tuesday afternoon. Good evening. Today, 
an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The men and women of law enforcement who defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are heroes. They are patriots and they are the very best of us. They did not just defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives in the line to defend who we are as a country and as a people. They defended the very institutions and principles that define the United States. Since the attack on our capital, the Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment, and our investigation of other individuals continues. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. In the meantime, I must emphasize that the indictment is only an allegation and that the defendant must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. I would like to thank the members of the Federal Bureau of Investigation who are working on this investigation with my office, as well as the many career prosecutors and law enforcement agents from around the country who have worked on previous January 6th investigations. These women and men are public servants of the very highest order, and it is a privilege to work alongside them. Thank you. That was it. Special Counsel Jack Smith making his announcement about the four-count uh, indictment against the former president of the United States for charges relating to Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election. Um, the uh, indictment was handed up, as they say, by the grand jury, not handed uh, down from the grand jury. And Desi Doyne, you explained that to me in the yeah, uh, few I mean, minutes uh, we had to wait. A very simple way of yeah. thinking about it um, is super simple, is yeah. that the uh, the jury foreman hands the indictment up to the judge. The judge hands then the indictment down, down to the defendant. Gotcha. OK, that's like super basic, simple. You know, I'm sure there's more technical stuff. Well, yeah, because I was but, yeah. I was seeing. Oh, I was going to say they they handed down an indictment. Apparently, they handed up an <laughs> indictment, and now it's been handed down unclear. Uh, it was also thought that it was going to be uh, a sealed indictment. That there were uh, going to be a lot of conspirators, and we would not learn uh, too much from this indictment. But again, just minutes before airtime. Uh, a 45-page indictment was made public, and uh, the only person that I can tell in the brief moments I've had to, to, to leave through it here, the only people named 
specifically are Donald J. Trump. There are some folks who are described, and we can probably figure out who most, uh, if not all, of them are. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, But as Jack Smith said, he encourages us all to read the indictment in full. And while we're we're not going to do that on the show, we may read a fair portion of this indictment along with you because I am just seeing this for the first time. Yeah, I mean, this is like super historic news and we're all going to go through this together. (laughs) Whether we like it or not. Yeah. um, And we do like it. We do like accountability. Again, as I said at the top of the show, accountability an hour or so earlier might have been nice, but we will take what we can get. In fact, Donald Trump, uh, about an hour or so ago, had announced on his... um, dumb social media site that uh, he was indicted. He described, once again, Jack Smith as deranged (laughs) Jack Smith. He does not seem deranged at all to me, but uh, he announced that the deranged Jack Smith had uh, filed another indictment and that he was going to announce it at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. It was not at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Donald Trump, however, did have it pretty close to right. It was around 6.20 p.m. Eastern Time or so on Tuesday. Uh, as to the indictment, well, let's get to it. Uh, it uh, it's, a, as I said, a 45-page indictment. It says the grand jury charges that at all times material to this indictment on or about the dates and at the approximate times dates stated below. The defendant, Donald J. Trump, was the 45th president of the United States and a candidate for re-election in 2020. The defendant lost the 2020 presidential election. In case there are any questions about that, Jack Smith makes that very clear in paragraph number one. The defendant lost the 2020 presidential election. Despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months following Election Day on November 3, 2020, the defendant spread lies that there had been outcome-determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. These claims were false and, and this is critical, the defendant knew that they were false. The uh, But the defendant repeated and widely disseminated them anyway to make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger and erode public faith in the administration of the election. The defendant had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. He was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means, such as by seeking recounts or audits of the popular vote in states or filing lawsuits, challenging ballots and procedures. Indeed, in many cases, according to the indictment, the defendant did pursue these methods of contesting an election uh, of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful. Shortly after Election Day, the defendant also pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results. I don't know yet if uh, Jack Smith is using the word that I think uh, is important to use here, the fact that Donald Trump was trying to steal the election. 
but he describes him as having attempted to subvert the election results. In doing so, according to the indictment, the defendant perpetrated three criminal conspiracies. A, a conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government. B, a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding at which the collected results of the proceeding uh, of the uh, presidential election are counted and certified and C a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted in violation of 18 USC section 241 each of these conspiracies which built on the widespread mistrust that the defendant was creating through pervasive and dis- destabilizing lies about election fraud targeted a bedrock function of the United States federal government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. That would be, in fact, the federal government function that Donald Trump is accused of attempting to impede, in fact, uh, joining a conspiracy to do so. Count one is the conspiracy to defraud the United States. The conspiracy, as described in this uh, in this indictment, from on or about November 14, 2020, through on or about January 20, 2021, that would be the day that Joe Biden was sworn in, in the District of Columbia and elsewhere, the defendant, Donald J. Trump, did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with co-conspirators known and unknown to the grand jury to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government. The purpose of the conspiracy was to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by using knowingly false claims, knowingly false claims of election fraud to obstruct the federal government function by which those results are collected, counted and certified. The uh, indictment then goes on to list uh, how many here? Six co-conspirators. And I guess this is a a guessing game, at least for those of us who have yet to read the entire indictment, Mm -hmm. as I am reading it with you uh, live on air. Have never had to do this before, by the way. Never had a president actually try to steal an election. A president of the United States try to steal an election and be held accountable for it. That's important. The second part of that statement. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And that is what is happening here. And we've never had that uh, much less uh, happen live when we have been on air. So uh, the defendant uh, enlisted co-conspirators, according to Jack Smith's indictment, to assist him in his criminal effort to overturn the legitimate legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election and retain power. Among these were... Co-conspirator one, an attorney who was willing to spread knowingly false claims and pursue strategies that the defendant's 2020 reelection campaign attorneys would not. 
So uh, an attorney who was not on the actual reelection campaign because apparently Jack Smith says that th- those who were involved in the actual campaign would not play along with this. Now, uh, there's a number of attorneys uh, who worked with Donald Trump outside of the campaign who were willing to spread knowingly false claims. This one, if based on my leafing ahead somewhat, yeah. While Jack Smith was speaking there, leaving ahead somewhat, appears to be a co-conspirator, number one, appears to be Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, that was my my impression as well. Uh, co-conspirator number two is an attorney who devised and attempted to implement a strategy to leverage the vice president's ceremonial role overseeing the certification proceedings to obstruct the certification of the presidential election. Sounds like John Eastman. Yes, it does as well to me. But there is, uh, well, yeah, let's let's say that's John Eastman for now. Uh, and by the way, I can't even tell if these uh, folks are indicted or not. They are listed as co-conspirators, not necessarily unindicted co-conspirators or indicted co-conspirators. As far as I can tell in this um, in this indictment right now, uh, the indictment is titled United States of America versus Donald Trump defendant. It does not list any of these other folks currently as having been indicted. Uh, Co-conspirator number uh, two, I already said, uh, we think that's John Eastman. Co-conspirator three, an attorney whose unfounded claims of election fraud, the defendant, Donald Trump, privately acknowledged to others, sounded, quote, crazy. (laughs) Nonetheless, the defendant embraced and publicly amplified co-conspirator three's disinformation. Any guess who that might be, Desi Doyle? My guess is that would be Sidney Powell. That is my guess as well. Again, we are just guessing here. Take yes. none of this to the bank. You're welcome. Co-conspirator, blame Jack Smith. Uh, co-conspirator <laughs> number four, a Justice Department official who worked on civil matters. And who, with the defendant, attempted to use the Justice Department to open sham election crime investigations and influence state legislatures with knowingly false claims of election fraud. That sounds like Jeffrey Clark to me. Yep. Uh, he was the guy who was actually in charge of the uh, the environmental division yeah. at the Department of Justice. Yeah, he's an environmental lawyer. And I remember that there was some very specific uh, snarky words that were delivered by one of Trump's um, one of Trump's attorneys these, that we heard uh, testimony during the February, uh, the January the 6th, 6th committee hearings. hearings yeah. Yes, where he said, listen, when there's an environmental problem, we'll call you. Yeah. Go back and wait for an oil spill. Yeah, you're right. That's so that, the Eastman that there. I mean, so I mean, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Clark. Clark. Yes, Jeffrey sorry. Clark. That's Jeffrey Clark, uh, who Donald Trump actually tried to and may have actually put in charge of the DOJ, at least for a moment when he was trying to decapitate uh, the folks who are still there after right. Bill Barr had already left because of all of this. He was not successful because those people who were running the DOJ at the time said, look, if you put Jeffrey Clark in charge, we are all quitting en masse. You will have no Department of Justice. It'll make the Friday Night Massacre under Richard Nixon look like a picnic. So he is listed as co-conspirator here. And we're also, just to be clear, we're Mm -hmm. speculating that this is Jeffrey Clark. We don't actually know the names of these people yet. Thank you very much. Uh, Co-conspirator number five is an attorney who assisted in devising and attempting to implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceeding. That also sounds like 
uh, John Eastman, but in fact, I'm not sure who that is, uh, who it was who came up with the uh, with the fake electors scheme. But that would be listed as uh, co-conspirator number five. And finally, co-conspirator number six, a political consultant who helped implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceeding. And uh, that might been it might have been and I'm now forgetting his name, but I believe uh, the guy who was in charge of Donald Trump's Election Day operations, who uh, Malone, I think was his name, John Malone, Maroney, something along those something lines. Like that, yeah. Anyway, I apologize to all the John Malones out there who were not <laughs> co-conspirators. Uh, but uh, that's who that sounds like here. He was the one who actually, uh, if that is in fact him, he was the one who actually received the fake certificates from these fake electors from, uh, uh, was it about six or seven different states that Donald Trump claims to have won, but in fact Joe Biden won, and then uh, attempted to deliver those uh, fake certificates, in fact, to, mm-hmm. uh, to Congress on January 6th. Uh, let me share a little bit more on this here. The federal government functions by which the uh, results of the election for president of the United States are collected, counted and certified was established through the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act, the federal law enacted in 1887. Uh, it provides he explains how it provides for the electors to select the president and that each state is allowed to determine for itself how to appoint the electors to apportion uh, the electors apportioned to each state, though through state laws, each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia choose to select their electors based on the popular vote in the state. After Election Day, the Electoral Count Act required each state to formally determine or ascertain the electors who would represent the state's voters by casting electoral votes on behalf of the candidate who had won the popular vote and required the executive of each state to certify to the federal government that the identities of those electors were accurate. Then, on a date set by the ECA, the Electoral Count Act, each state's ascertained electors were required to meet and collect the results of the presidential election, that is, to cast electoral votes based on their state's popular vote and to send their electoral votes along with the state's executives' Um, certification that they were the state's legitimate electors to the U.S. Congress to be counted and certified at the official proceeding. Finally, the Constitution and ECA required that on the 6th of January, following Election Day, the Congress meet in a joint session for a certification proceeding presided over by the vice president as president of the Senate to count those electoral votes to resolve any objections and announce the results, thus certifying the winner of the presidential election as president elect. This federal government function from the point of ascertainment to the certification is foundational to the U.S. democratic process and until 2021 had operated in a peaceful and orderly manner for more than 130 years. That is the process that the um, indictment goes on to explain how it was disrupted and uh, attempted to be blocked by various manner and means put into place by Donald Trump and those, uh, how many did I say? Six co-conspirators. He uh, notes the defendant's conspiracy to impair, obstruct, and defeat the federal government function through dishonesty, fraud, and deceit. 
The defendant, his co-conspirators, and their agents made false, knowingly false claims that there had been outcome-determinative fraud in the 2020 presidential election. These prolific lies about election fraud included dozens of specific claims that there had been substantial fraud in certain states, such as that large numbers of dead, non-resident, non-citizen, or otherwise ineligible voters had cast ballots, or that voting machines had changed votes for the defendant to votes for Biden. These claims were false. And, and this is again important, the defendant knew that they were false. In fact, according to the indictment, the defendant was notified repeatedly that his claims were untrue, often by the people on whom he relied for candid advice on important matters and who were best positioned to know the facts. And he de uh, deliberately disregarded the truth. He gives uh, a, a bunch of uh, instances here. I'm not going to go through all of them for you, but I'll, I'll hit a few of these just to give you an idea uh, of what it is that uh, Jack Smith is breaking down in, by the way, state after state after state. The defendant widely disseminated the false claims of election fraud for months, despite the fact that he knew and in many cases had been informed directly that they were not true. The defendant's knowingly false statements were integral to his criminal plans to defeat the federal government function, obstruct the certification and interfere with other others right to vote and to have their vote counted. He made these knowingly false claims throughout the post-election time period, including those below that he made immediately before the attack on the January 6th, uh, his, his attack on the Capitol on January 6th. For example, A, the defendant insinuated that more than 10,000 dead voters had voted in Georgia. Well, just four days earlier, Jack Smith notes in the indictment, Georgia's secretary of state had explained to the defendant that this was false. B, the defendant asserted that there had been 205,000 more votes than voters in Pennsylvania. Well, in fact, the defendant's acting attorney general and the defendant's acting deputy attorney general had explained to him, to Donald Trump, that this was false. The defendant said that there had been a suspicious vote dump in Detroit, Michigan. The defendant's attorney general had explained to the defendant that this, too, was false. And the defendant's allies in the uh, in the Michigan state legislature, the Speaker of the House and representatives and majority leader of the Senate had publicly announced that there was no evidence of substantial fraud in the state. So these are all things that by January 6th, at that point, we're talking about uh, when was the election? I think it was November 8th, 7th or 8th. Yes. So uh, November, uh, uh, November, December, January. So two months after Election Day, all of these things which had been looked at, dozens of lawsuits that had been brought to court and thrown out for insufficient evidence. Yes, a lot of them were thrown out on for technical reasons because uh, whoever filed them didn't have the standing to do so, but many of them were thrown out simply because there was not the evidence or the evidence that was claimed was false. 
So there was two months of looking into this. We have reported on this program about the two different research firms that the Trump campaign had hired for hundreds of thousands of dollars to look into all of these claims in all of these states that they were questioning. And in all of those cases, uh, those firms came back and said, no, we find absolutely no evidence of fraud that would have overturned the election in any of the states you have had us look at. And Donald Trump heard this, not just from the companies, but he heard it from his own people, from his own attorney general, Bill Barr, from his own acting attorney general and deputy acting attorney general who had uh, replaced Bill Barr after he left. From actual election officials like Republican Brad Raffensperger, the Republican secretary of state in Georgia, um, from the speaker of the House in Arizona, guy by the name of Rusty Bowers, uh, the Arizona House speaker. Uh, asked co-conspirator one, again, we think that's uh, Rudy Giuliani, for evidence of these claims, which co-conspirator one did not have, but claimed he would provide. The indictment notes co-conspirator one never did so. The defendant, Donald Trump, and co-conspirator one asked the House Speaker to use the legislature to uh, circumvent the process by which legitimate electors would be ascertained for Joe Biden based on the popular vote and replace those electors with a new slate for the defendant, for Donald Trump. Why? Oh, just because. The Arizona House Speaker, to his credit, again, Republican Rusty Bowers, um, refused, responding that the suggestion was beyond anything he had ever heard or thought of as something within his authority. These were attempts, uh, the uh, defendant's use of deceit to get state officials to subvert the legitimate election results and change electoral votes in Arizona. It also happened in Georgia, and that is also detailed in this 45-page indictment. For example, uh, is this Georgia? Yes. Uh, in a phone call on December 27, the defendant spoke with the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general. During the there was be at the U.S. Department of Justice during the call, the defendant again pressed the unfounded claims regarding State Farm Arena, where you'll recall the uh, two election workers, Shea Ruby Moss, Freeman, yes. Ru Ruby Freeman, were mercilessly hounded and threatened by Donald Trump, by Rudy Giuliani, and by their supporters. Uh, the unfounded claims regarding State Farm Arena and the two top Justice Department officials again rebutted those allegations, telling Donald Trump that the Justice Department had reviewed the videotape that they claimed showed these two women somehow stealing votes, passing around, as Rudy Giuliani said, passing around USB drives like vials of heroin or cocaine. cocaine. Yeah, racist dog whistle. In fact, they were ginger mints. Um, so uh, he was told, Donald Trump was, that the Justice Department had reviewed that videotape, had actually interviewed witnesses, and had not identified any suspicious conduct. So we see uh, uh, point after point in state after state of uh, these sorts of violations, these sorts of claims that was being made by Donald Trump, when in fact he knew that these claims were false because there is evidence, apparently evidence of people who have cooperated in this investigation with uh, with Jack Smith, 
to uh, let him know in no uncertain terms that, yeah, we told Donald Trump these were not true. These claims were not true. And yet Donald Trump went out and made these claims anyway. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, all listed throughout this uh, throughout this uh, indictment. The defendant's attempt to leverage the Justice Department is detailed to leverage the Justice Department to use deceit to get state officials to replace legitimate electors and electoral votes with the defendants. This had to do with uh, Jeffrey Clark, again, that environmental attorney who Donald Trump tried to put in charge of the Department of Justice, who had written up a memo that he wanted to send out to those states in question, to Georgia, to uh, tell them, hey, the Department of Justice has found information suggesting that the election has been improperly, uh, uh, the results have been improperly reported. We'd like you to reconvene your legislature to reconsider whether or not you really want Joe Biden to be uh, your uh, your slate of electors. Yeah, and that's a typical Trump pattern to say, just announce that you're going to do an investigation. We'll take care of the rest. And he literally did say that, that Republican uh, Republican uh, Congress members would take care of the rest. Just, just make the announcement. We'll do the rest, even if there's no actual evidence at all, which there wasn't. Evidence, evidence. Who needs <laughs> it? It's true. Just make the claims. Just telling uh, Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine, just go out and make the claim that we're looking into Hunter Biden. That's good enough. We'll let the Republican congressman take it from there. Uh, Which is exactly what Donald Trump was telling the Department of Justice. Just make the claim that uh, you you have found uh, a troubling fraud. We'll take it from there. Even though it's not true. (laughs) Even though it's not true. Even though he knew that it was false. Guess what? He's now being held accountable for all of this. If you're just tuning into the broadcast, uh, the uh, president of the United States, Donald Trump, has been charged. Thank you very much. The former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, has been charged with four counts uh, in Jack Smith's investigation of January 6th and the events around that. Donald Trump's. Uh, what what they're now describing as election interference, count one, conspiracy to defraud the U- the United States, count two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, count three, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and count four, conspiracy against rights, along with, well, uh, six co-conspirators who are named in this indictment. Unnamed. Thank you, who are unnamed in this <laughs> indictment. Uh, and who are apparently not charged or not yet charged. And I have a sneaking suspicion that some of this is about saying, hey, guys, if you have any intention of flipping, now would be a really good time for the six of you co-conspirators to do so. The defendants attempt to enlist the vice president to fraudulently alter the election results at the January 6th certification proceeding is also detailed by Jack Smith. Uh, count one is uh, really goes through uh, the defendants' exploitation of the violence and chaos at the Capitol is detailed. All of this information on... Um, On count one, the conspiracy to defraud the United States near the uh, end, really back on page 43 of 45, we finally get to count two. 
from on or about November 14 through on or about January 7 in the District of Columbia and elsewhere, the defendant Donald J. Trump did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with co-conspirators known and unknown to the grand jury to corruptly obstruct and impede an official proceeding. That is the certification of the electoral vote in violation of Title 18, United States Code, Section 1512. Count three is obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, which went from November 14 uh, through on or about January 7 of 2021. Uh, Donald J. Trump attempted to and did corruptly obstruct and impede an official proceeding. That is the certification of the electoral vote. And finally, count four from on or about November 14, 2020 through about January 20. 2021 in the District of Columbia and elsewhere, the defendant Donald J. Trump did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate and agree with co-conspirators known and unknown to the grand jury to injure, oppress, threaten and intimidate one or more persons in the free exercise and enjoyment of a right and privilege secured to them by the Constitution and laws of the United States. That is the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. Donald Trump conspired to prevent the right to vote and to have one's vote counted as cast in violation of Title 18, the United States Code, Section 241. This is signed by the foreperson whose name is uh, not included on this. Uh, it's described as a true bill. Jack Smith, special counsel, United States Department of Justice has signed it. That's your 45 page indictment. This will be. Apparently, if I'm uh, understanding this correctly, heard by or overseen by Judge uh, Chutkin. I think her first name is Victoria. I'm not sure. Uh, she is in the uh, in the uh, D.C. District uh, where they have some of the uh, most experienced judges overseeing cases. And in the few seconds before airtime, when I heard someone uh, refer to Judge Chutkin, she was referred to as uh, a, a wise, a seasoned uh, professional judge. Yes. Which I take it to mean she is not a Donald Trump appointee. I take that as well. And, you know, basically the things that I, I hope that that I yes. have seen about her have been uh, complimentary that she's serious. Uh, she is said to be a very good, very strong, very straightforward jurist and that she don't take no guff from nobody, including from Jack Smith. So anybody tries anything, apparently she will be um, not letting that get away in her courtroom. There you go. There's our top story uh, that I had no idea would be our top story until just moments before airtime. We're going to take a quick break. We will come back with uh, a we do have a green news report today, don't we? We do. So we'll come back with whatever we can figure out if to fit in. If I can in. get to it. If I can get to it. And yes. whatever else we can fit in, uh, we'll figure out our priorities after a quick break here on this apparently special edition of the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Thank you. 
Brad Cass, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Special edition, apparently, as Jack Smith, a special counsel Jack Smith, has now indicted Donald Trump on four counts related to his attempt to steal the 2020 election from the American people. Yes, from you. Uh, we are going to get to Desi Doyne's Green News Report momentarily. Let me see what I can uh, fit in from what I had <laughs> hoped to cover here today. Yeah, it was a good show. Uh, well, yeah, it would have been good. We'll see. Anyway, it is still good. Nonetheless, great news, actually. So let me temper that with some sad news out of the Garden State today. Uh, Sheila Oliver, New Jersey's lieutenant governor and the first black woman to hold statewide elected office there, died Suddenly, on Tuesday, after being suddenly rushed to the hospital on Monday, she was 71 years old. Oliver was elected lieutenant governor in 2017 as Governor Phil Murphy's running mate after serving for 15 years in the state legislature. In 2010, she became the first black woman to lead the predominantly male state assembly in New Jersey. And in 2011, she actually played a bit of a a central role in the exclusive audio recordings that I obtained and published at Bradblog.com and at Mother Jones from a super secret Koch Brothers event in uh, or outside Vail, Colorado, featuring then New Jersey governor and then presidential hopeful and I guess now once again presidential hopeful Chris Christie who wowed the millionaires and the billionaires at that Koch Brothers meeting uh, at this uh, super secret gathering. Uh, she wowed, he wowed them all with a story about Sheila Oliver that she vehemently disputed after the publication of my series of uh, exclusives, including exclusive audio that you can still listen to today and which at the time rocked New Jersey media outlets because they had no idea that Chris Christie had even left the state for that gathering on that day. In the follow up to my uh, story. By local state media at the time, Oliver would ultimately say that she wondered if Governor Christie was, quote, mentally deranged after what he had claimed about her. His allegations. She described uh, his comments about her at this Koch Brothers meeting as, quote, outright lies. It was, I should note, ultimately unclear who exactly was lying and who was telling the truth. But I will link to the story from uh, from uh, 2011 at the Brad blog when I post this show tonight, if you want to check it out for yourself and, and, and decide for yourself. And as I say, you can still listen to the audio of Chris Christie back when he was considered to be a serious contender for president of the United States in the 2012 election. That was before he blew himself up with Bridgegate and everything else. Sheila Oliver's death, Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver's death. Uh, comes as she had been serving as acting governor of New Jersey while Governor Murphy and his family had just left for uh, over the weekend for a vacation in Italy. She was taken to the hospital on Monday, according to state officials who provided no additional details. Uh, Leroy Jones, Jr., the state's Democratic Party chair, called her a friend and role model, quote, a true icon for representation, diversity and progress. Sheila leaves behind a legacy of breaking barriers that will never be forgotten, he said. Uh, so there is that. And uh, there was 
a bunch of stuff that I wanted to get to today that we'll have to put off to another day, but some is more critical immediately than others. For example, yo, Ohio, listeners in Ohio, particularly those up at our uh, Columbus affiliate station, WGRN, the great 94.1 FM in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Y'all got a really important election on Tuesday, August 8th. That's about one week from now. I suspect you know that, but in case anyone within earshot does not know that, that election is August 8th, and it is crucially important. That's the constitutional referendum that was just slammed onto the Ohio election schedule as an August special election by state Republicans. The very same state Republicans that just months ago literally this year had actually made August elections unlawful for the most part in the Buckeye state. They said, we're not going to do that anymore. They're too, they're low turnout. They're very costly affairs. We can't afford to do that. After all, we're, we're fiscal conservatives here, us Republicans <laughs> in this uh, Buckeye state. And then, and there was, this was an effort led by their secretary of state uh, with the, uh, with the gerrymandered state legislature we don't want to have these August elections anymore. They're and then, too expensive. And then a few months later, hey, guess what? Let's have a special August election. And let's do it to try to take away constitutional rights and freedoms from our voters. That is the constitutional referendum that was just slammed onto the schedule as an August special election by state Republicans just weeks ago, just months after they had made those unlawful in the Buckeye state. They changed the law. This is an election next Tuesday that would rewrite the state constitution to mandate 60 percent needed for passage of constitutional ballot initiatives. In other words, to make it harder to pass constitutional amendments, to make it harder for direct democracy in the Buckeye state. Currently, just 50 percent is required for passage of a constitutional referendum. Uh, which is how uh, much will be required to pass to pass Tuesday's ballot measure put on the ballot by Republicans in order to make it harder to pass all future ballot measures specifically. And this is the reason that Republicans rush this measure onto the onto the ballot in August, specifically to try to block a citizen initiative that is on the ballot that looks like it will qualify for the ballot this November. They're trying to challenge that as well. Uh, but that would include the right to it would the uh, initiative would be to include the right to reproductive freedoms into the state constitution in Ohio after Republicans have been trying to take away that right for uh, for voters, for people, for citizens and residents in the state of Ohio. This would uh, this November initiative would write that into the Constitution, that this right exists, and that's what Republicans are trying to stop by making it harder. Now, it's very popular. The reproductive freedoms are in the state of Ohio. And Turns out people like having their they rights, do. especially women. A huge majority of them, in fact, about 58% of voters Support reproductive freedom in Ohio. That is a pretty huge majority. However, that would be just shy of the 60 percent that authoritarian Ohio Republicans are hoping will be needed by this November 
to adopt an amendment to the state constitution. Again, they didn't make their own uh, uh, ballot measure. Uh, That wouldn't require 60 percent for passage, just the ones thereafter. So voting in this Tuesday's August 8th's statewide referendum could not be more important to rights and freedoms and, yes, democracy in the great state of Ohio. And while I'm no huge fan of voting early in general, uh, given the dirty tricks that I have seen play out by Ohio Republicans over the years and given the efforts and the dirty tricks that they are willing to do to try to undermine any way they can, people's democracy in Ohio, I would not recommend, in fact, waiting until Election Day next week. If possible, I would strongly recommend you try to vote early this time around to make sure, as Republicans like to say these days, make sure to bank your vote. (laughs) Absolutely. Not only that, call anyone you might know in Ohio. Reach out to anyone you might know in Ohio. And if you're in Ohio... Help other people vote, too. Just make sure that everyone gets the word. It's August 8th. Make sure everyone understands what the stakes are and why it's so important that they get out and vote. Vote early. Not often, but vote (laughs) early. Just one time, wherever you may be in Ohio. Help others and even help people, by the way, out of state. If you're an Ohio resident away from the summer, uh, as Republicans are hoping, which is one of the reasons they're putting this uh, ballot measure in the middle of summer, hoping nobody notices, please ruin their day. Let everyone know this election is underway, and I think it's called uh, ballot issue number one uh, is on that ballot. You might want to ring in on that by or before this coming Tuesday in Ohio. All right, quick break and all the other stuff that we were going to get to. (laughs) Oh, it was good. That was the really good part. You don't get to hear that. Too bad. Quick break and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, which is always a good part of the show. Don't get me wrong. Don't give me that dirty look, Desi Doyen. (laughs) That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported thanks to listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Now, in theory, tomorrow's program will be uh, better organized, will make sense. Uh, paging Heather Digby Parton. I think we need to give her a call. Maybe she'll be with us on the next Thrilling Bradcast. Until then, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa, and Europe, it's a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. July 2023, the hottest month in all of recorded history. President Biden enacts new heat protections for workers, plus... The cost of living for Victorians uh, is getting bigger and bigger. Doing something about it is exactly what today is about. An Australian state bans natural gas in new construction. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and... Snarky comment. The era of global warming has ended. Great. The era of global boiling has arrived. Damn it. This is your Green News Report. 
Okay, Desi Doyen, we saw this coming all the way down the road from June. Hottest month ever in July. Oh, yes. Climate scientists didn't even wait until the end of July to declare it the hottest July in history since record-keeping began in the mid-1800s. July is also the hottest month ever recorded on planet Earth. That's according to preliminary analysis from the World Meteorological Organization and Europe's Copernicus Climate Service. So not just the hottest July ever, but the hottest month ever recorded on planet Earth. Yes, and it's also likely the hottest in 120,000 years based on evidence of past temperatures in paleoclimate records. Mm. Endless extreme summer heat across the southern United States is now entering its third straight month. NASA forecasts a hotter than normal August and September for much of the nation, likely to set new temperature records. Oh, great. Phoenix on Monday finally ended its record streak of 31 consecutive oh, days at or above 110 degrees, that's nearly double the previous record set 50 years ago. So, global cooling has begun. (laughs) No, that makes Phoenix the first U.S. city to hit 110 degrees for a full month but likely not the last. Mm. An Arizona wildlife rehabilitation facility says it is receiving as many as 120 wild animals a day, suffering from the relentless heat. Mm. As the northern hemisphere broils, it's winter down under, but Australia is on track to see its warmest winter on record, with Sydney averaging 74 degrees. The South Pole is in deep winter, but scientists say Antarctica's sea ice extent has hit record lows for the satellite era, missing an amount of sea ice equal to the area of Argentina. The increasing frequency and intensity of extreme heat is symptomatic of global human-driven climate change that is fueling these extreme heat waves, wildfires, storms and floods, and more across the globe. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres excoriated world governments for slow-walking the transition away from fossil fuels. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here. It is terrifying and it is just the beginning. No more excuses. No more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Good luck with that, Tony. Here in the U.S., federal data show that extreme heat costs the U.S. economy about $100 billion a year in lost productivity, not just for workers in typical outdoor industries like construction and agriculture, but also workers in factories, restaurants, and more. President Biden on Thursday announced new actions to protect workers and communities from extreme temperatures, including the Labor Department issuing the first ever heat hazard alert for employers to protect their workers from extreme heat. It clarifies that workers have federal heat-related protections. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out where they refuse to protect these workers. Yeah, I think he's talking to you, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Plus, congressional Democrats have introduced the Extreme Heat Emergency Act with a provision to include extreme heat and wildfire smoke as disasters that can qualify for federal emergency assistance. Good. Some good news. Canada, the world's fourth largest oil producer, has unveiled a framework for eliminating inefficient subsidies enjoyed by the wildly profitable fossil fuel industry. The first G20 country 
to act on an international commitment to phase out taxpayer subsidies. Good. Climate policy analysts say it is a critical first step, but it falls short because it does allow for government subsidies to the oil and gas industry to use unproven carbon capture and storage to reduce their emissions. And finally, the Australian state of Victoria has banned natural gas hookups in new homes and government buildings starting January 1st, part of a plan to reach net zero emissions in the state by 2045. The Victorian government estimates the change will save households up to $1,000 on their annual energy bills or $2,000 if they have solar installed because clean energy is cheaper than fossil fuels. Sounds terrible. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Just give me the warm power of the sun. Give me the steady flow of the waterfall. That was the leftiest song we could possibly find to end today's Green News Report. Thanks to our friend Casey. Yep. Who suggested that one. And, uh, of course, yep. this was all recorded before the indictment of Donald J. Trump, but uh, so the music doesn't really quite fit. It but. fits. I would have played it anyway. Give me the warm power of the sun. To hell with <laughs> them all. Once again, repeating our top story, Donald J. Trump has been charged in federal uh, court, or at least by a federal grand jury, on four counts related to his efforts to overturn to reverse to, yes, steal the 2020 presidential election in these United States. He is nonetheless still the Republican frontrunner for the 2024 presidential election. Go figure. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, to all of you for tolerating us today and uh, sharing a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other we have ever done, download them all for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. would love to hear from you with your thoughts. Maybe we'll share them on the air about Donald Trump's latest federal indictment. And you can find me otherwise on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known as Twitter at the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, Donald Trump. Just give me the restless power of the wind. Give me the comforting glow. Give me the comforting glow. But please take all of your atomic poison power away. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day National Guard troops in Minneapolis raided Teamsters Local 574 headquarters. Over 150 were arrested, including top strike leaders Bill Brown and the Dunn brothers, who were imprisoned in military stockades. Troops also seized union records and files. They then raided the Central Labor Union and forcing out dozens of area labor leaders. The Teamsters had been battling the trucking bosses and the citizens' alliance 
plants throughout the spring and summer in what would be a turning point for industrial organizing. Finally, drivers agreed to a tentative settlement, but the bosses rejected any deal, refusing to negotiate with Reds. Farmer Labor Party Governor Floyd Olson declared martial law the next day. 4,000 troops arrived, issuing unlimited military permits to scab drivers. By months and over 7,500 scab trucks were rolling throughout the city. Local 574 challenged the martial law, demanding that peaceful picketing and open-air meetings be reinstated. They also wanted troops withdrawn from the city, and they wanted all truck movement halted for 48 hours. When Olson rejected these demands, a mass rally was called for the 31st to mobilize strike support. 25,000 turned out to the parade grounds, cheering strike leader Bill Brown, who declared, quote, the Farmer Labor Party is the best strike-breaking force our union has ever gone up against. Historian Brian Palmer notes, the loudest and longest applause was reserved for Albert Goldman, who thundered, quote, if we submit without a struggle, then we deserve the fate of submissive slaves. We cannot, we dare not submit. We call upon the workers, organized and unorganized, to clench their fists, shout defiance of the bosses, and struggle until victory or death.